This is the genealogy of Isaac, Genesis 25, 19, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Now, not just two, she's two nations, so you can understand why she's having a little bit of a problem here. <laughs> the two peoples shall be, by the way, it's, it's important to note that right when this is happening, that it's not just two individuals, but two nations as far as the scriptures, which we'll look at a little bit today and continue. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So, Lord, we just are thankful again that we get to have the word in such an abundance, our Bibles, all of our different tablets, that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts, discerner of those things. So, Lord, we need your word. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord, to search our hearts and grant to us an understanding ear and obedient heart as we look at these things this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come teach us, remind us, exhort us, rebuke us, whatever we need. We're asking in Jesus' name, Lord, I'm asking the things I've prepared, you break them fresh for us this time. We're hungry. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We can never... Lord, we never want to minimize the importance that your word, spiritual food, the seed that has everything necessary for life, would, be, would take root in good soil and bear fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Whatever you have in mind, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So if I were going to outline this book, uh, just I'm, I'm going to just these chapters. Here's how I would put it. I'm going to give you these three We'll talk a little bit about them, and then I have three others that I'd like to apply these things. So struggling together, this is the, what we're told there is they struggle together, verse 22, within her. So number one, in verses 19 through 23, is their battle. Secondly, in 24 through 28, their births. And then finally, in verses 29 through 34, is the birthright. So as we're looking at, these, at this passage this morning and to come... There is further commentary in the Bible of the birth of these twins. So the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. Would you say amen to that? What does the Bible say? How does the Bible support these things? And what does the Bible say about? Well, there's a lot of commentary on, this birth, on these, the birth of these twins. So we're going to look at some of them this morning, others as we continue through our study in Genesis. But I want to begin with this thought this morning and amplify it a little bit as best as I can. When it comes to our theology our study of God, there will be both problems to solve and tensions to manage in our theology. So I like to call those the theology twins, okay? Thing one and thing two. <laughs> thing one are the problems to solve, and then uh, thing two are the tensions to manage and understanding how those work together. And so these are the theology twins. When it comes to God's sovereignty and man's free will, you have a tension there. It's a problem for us, humanly speaking. When we talk about God's choices, God's decrees, God's decisions, you have tensions there 
problems for us in our finiteness. So as we give ourselves to study the scriptures, to show ourselves approved to God by rightly dividing the word of truth, I believe that many times these revealed truths, which is what they are, God speaks them, they're revealed truths, are tensions to manage. And if I can rest with that, problem solved. Can I say that again? When I rest in the tensions to manage because I can't possibly understand them, I'm not God. If I can rest there, problem solved. God, in many times, is not asking me to solve the problem. He's asking me to believe what he's revealed. And so we're going to look at some of that this morning. If God were small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to be God. So again, it's one thing to be reading and these things reveal. How do I manage those tensions? Well, we're going to look a little bit about this morning. I'm going to give you three at the end. So number one, their battle, verses 19 through 23. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. So from this point, this is a little trailer for the next 10 or so chapters in the book of Genesis. The life of Jacob and, and Esau somewhat. So this is a little preamble. And what happens here, Isaac is in the background much more now as we continue. We're going to a couple more chapters talking about Isaac and family. And then we'll get into the, the, the life of Jacob. So Isaac was 40 years old when he, be, when he took Rebekah as wife. And I love this. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian. We looked at that in chapter 24. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. He prayed for his wife to conceive. How long did he pray? Years. At least 20, maybe as much as 25 years. Now, I'm sure him and Rebecca were talking about that, but it was, it was a struggle. And it, in that culture, a big struggle when a wife was not conceiving. So he is praying for her. And the word used there indicates an intense, relentless supplication. Praying for God to do what only God can do. So for years, and meanwhile, during these years, Ishmael has 12 sons. Rebecca, none. And so you can imagine, again, the struggle that goes on there as they're looking. Well, what's the deal? And we all know what that's like to some degree in the things of life. There are struggles that we're looking and saying, why not? Why, God? How come this isn't happening? Well, what we need to do is we need to pray and not minimize what Isaac, we see Isaac doing. He prayed, he pleaded with God, an intense, relentless supplication. And note this, God's plan included Isaac's prayers. And they always do. God has lifted prayer to a top place in him working through our lives what he is desiring to do. So Rebecca conceived by the direct intervention of God in accordance with the prayers of her husband. God's delays are an important part of his direct intervention. His delays remind us we need to pray. When these things are impossible, we need to pray. We need to plead. We need, and sometimes, in fact, that's, I think, how God furthers the depth of our prayer lives. Trials and tribulations and impossibilities come. What are we going to Now, it's important that we re-up ourselves in just this beginning because notice what happens. Now, prayer is never to get my will done in heaven. It's to get God's will done on earth. 
Now notice what we have here. But the children struggled together within her, verse 22, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So where does she go? She didn't go to Isaac and say, what's the deal? It says she inquired of the Lord. You got a double duo here. Husbands and wife, a husband and wife praying for God to do for them what they desire. And there's nothing more powerful. I, don't, I believe when a husband and wife pray together. Peter admonishes the husbands to understand their wives so their prayer life is not hindered. And, and there's, there's that, that need that we have to understand the, the importance and the power that God has invested in our prayers as we pray. Now, the struggle means to crush or oppress, struggling within her. It's, she's saying something's not right here. What's going on? And God tells her, well, let me tell you what's going on. You've got two nations in your room. Actually, said, you've got twins. That's what's going on. Now, Genesis is filled with the struggles between brothers. But they're all after birth. This is in the womb. So you know these guys got some temperaments that <laughs> are going to be furthering some tensions. Cain and Abel had a problem. The sons of Noah had a problem with each other. They struggled. Abraham and, and his nephew Lot. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Laban, Joseph and his brothers. There was this struggle, these tensions that were going on. And we all have relationship struggles. But is it not true that the hardest ones, the most difficult ones, the most intense ones are in family? What do we do about that? I'm going to just encourage you again, pray. Pray. Don't give up on that. Don't stop. Corey Ten Boone said, is prayer your steering wheel or... Your spare tire. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? I will have to admit to you, many times my prayer life is the spare tire. Something's gone wrong, now i got to fix it. Prayer, we resort to prayer. Rather than, hey, let's let prayer steer the relationships. Let's let prayer be what is guiding our lives. So, again, I'll ask you, and I hope it's, I hope it's encouraging as well as convicting, how's your prayer life? Is it your steering wheel? Is it that important to you? Now, I'm not saying go in your room for a half hour, turn off the lights, and I'm saying in your fellowship with God, is he the first one you're talking to? Is he the one you're trusting? Is he the one you're bringing these things up to? Are you inquiring of the Lord? Because we can so easily get off path by going to all other means rather than going to the Lord first in prayer, in fellowship. So verse 25, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your room. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is an oracle of God. This is a determined decree. This is a God choice. He's saying before they're ever born, the younger shall serve. He's reversing the order, and God did that a lot of times in the Bible. God chose Jacob over Esau. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Rachel over Leah. He chose Joseph over his older brothers. He chose Judah over his older brothers. And God does that. And that's what he decreed. That's what he decided. So I believe that no matter how we may study and seek to explain God's ways, there will, be, there will always remain the unexplainable. We are limited, finite, and time-bound. We cannot think as God thinks. We cannot know as God knows. We cannot choose as God chooses. 
We cannot determine as God determines. Simply put, we're not God. And you should be thankful I'm not. <laughs> and I'm thankful you're not. <laughs> there are things about which we can and should heartily discuss, even debate. That's good. But I dare say that he who thinks he has God and his ways figured out, sure can figure out a way. That's what happens. When it comes to God's decrees, God's decisions, God's choices, many times we're in the realm of tensions to manage. And if I can rest with that, problem solved. When it comes to theology, there are tensions to manage and problems to solve. And we should be able to talk about those things and have dialogue about those things. Not being afraid if someone thinks differently, believes differently. We should be able to heartily discuss those things. There's nothing to be afraid of with that. And having open hearts. But a lot of times, the doctrinal positions get in the way of what God is wanting to do in our relationships with one another. Look at what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Notice that we may do all the words of this law. So there are things that we don't know a lot, and there are things that we do know. But what's the end result? The end result is that it changes our lives, that we're being obedient to God. When someone would argue with Pastor Chuck Smith, who was my pastor from Costa Mesa, California, when they'd argue with him and come up and say, you need to have this position, this doctrinal position, you need to agree with me on these things. You should take a stand in this way. But Pastor Chuck would say, well, why don't you show me how that's made you more like Christ? A lot of times our doctrinal positions are the exact opposite. Now, this is not to say that doctrinal positions are not important. Of course they are. Paul, in his pastoral epistles... First and Second Timothy and Titus repeatedly exhorted his young sons in the faith, his, the leaders, the pastors he's writing to, to give diligent attention to study, to know, to teach, and to live out good, sound doctrine. It is important. But the point is this, as Paul writing to Timothy said, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart from a good conscience and from sincere faith. And then he said this, from which, what? A good conscience, a pure heart, and sincere faith. From which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. He's saying it should change your life. It should make you more like Christ. Love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. It should make us more like Christ. And that's always the goal, the law, the, the, the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of the word of God is to transform our lives to be more like Jesus. Would you say amen to that? What the Bible says is knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And thus, it's important that we have doctrinal discussions, doctrinal places that we land, doctrinal positions. But ultimately, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Now, concerning God's choice of Jacob and Esau, renowned British commentator F.B. Meyer wrote, wrote this very well, so I just want to read a little bit from his commentary. If we had been asked to tell which of these two men was heaven's favorite, 
we should in all likelihood have selected the wrong one, which we do often. Here stands Esau, the shaggy, broad-shouldered, red-haired huntsman, equipped with bow and arrows, full of generous impulse, affectionate to his aged father, forgiving to the brother who had done him such grievous wrong, Jacob. He became a chieftain of renown and the ancestor of a princely line. He was happy in his wives and children. We read of no such outbreaks as in bitter Jacob's lot. He was so rich that he could make light of Jacob's presence and so powerful that Jacob's company was helpless in his hand. We'll get this in Genesis 32. His people were happily settled in their rich territories whilst the children of Jacob were groaning in Egyptian bondage. There, on the other hand, is Jacob. In his young manhood, he's in exile from his father's house. In his mature manhood, he's a hireling in the employ of kinsmen. In his declining years, worn by anxiety and trouble. In his old age, a stranger in a, in a strange land. We got this last week. Few and evil were the days of the years of his pilgrimage, Jacob. Yet, he was the beloved of God. And it was because of that special love that he was exposed to such searching discipline whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Earthly prosperity is no sign of the special love of heaven, nor are sorrow and care any mark of God's disfavor, but the reverse, unquote. So we would look at him and say, okay, here's, here's, the, here's what I would say. God is often doing things about which, if it were possible, I would correct him. I can be so thankful that God is always right in everything he decrees and in everything he does. I can be thankful that God listens to me as one who loves me, but he loves me enough not to listen to me. The purpose of prayer is not to get my will done in heaven, it's to get God's will done on earth through my life. So are you thankful for those things? Are you thankful God hasn't answered some of your prayers? Their births, verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, red. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. Now, Psalm 139 says this. You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and that my marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. It is my, uh, James Dobson wrote this. It is my supposition that these temperaments are prepackaged before birth and do not have to be cultivated. They will make themselves known soon enough. How many of your parents would say, that's so true? And this book is The Strong-Willed Child. So he's writing to encourage parents who have strong-willed children. Well, and, you know, Char, I love what Charlotte says. You know, you, you talk with parents and even, with, even our upbringing, bringing our kids up, and they're having problems with kids. And she'll say, well, they're just sinners. <laughs> and that's true. And some of them are, have, and, and God, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. All these things about our personality and how we operate and how we think are wired pre-birth, during birth. God's wiring the whole thing. Now, God wants to take those things and fashion them in such a way that he's glorified through our lives. I'll tell you what, that's a struggle, I think, for God sometimes. <laughs> and, and thus we'll find out with Esau. So here are their births. Now, Jacob actually is a, has an interesting 
uh, definition. The word means, his name means, may God protect. Now, a lot of times if you hear Jacob, you hear he's the heel catcher. He's the conniver. But the word itself in the Hebrew sounds like heel. And as these these, uh, names became prophetic, as as their lives were being played out, well, because the word means to be your rear guard. It's a military name in that sense. But find, kind of find out, no, this guy's a he's a so his name so his nickname became the heel catcher. Esau, on the other hand, means red, earth colored. So he's the rugged in nature. He's rugged. He, he becomes the rugged nation Edom. Verse twenty-seven. So the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. So here you have these twin brothers who could not be more opposite. Esau was a man of the field, an outdoorsman, bows and arrows, skillful hunter. He's the sports guy. He's the guy working out. He's the buff guy, like me. (laughs) He smelled like the field. Someone said, you might not hear him coming, but you sure could smell him. (laughs) Thus, we have athletes. (laughs) Jacob was the mild man. He was the homeboy. He was the mama's boy. He was a, but he was, the word means solid. Sound. He was quiet but self, and self-controlled. He was level-headed and dependable. And as you look at his life, even with Laban, all those years he served, he was very industrious, hard worker, driven. So though he's quiet, don't let that fool you. Jacob is anything but quiet on the inside. He's always thinking and driven those ways. And thus as we see him with the birthright. And so verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Isaac favored Esau because he had the meats. He liked Arby's. <laughs> Whereas Rebekah favored Jacob because he's mama's boy. And that's what's going on here. So even after their years of praying and waiting and finally God graces them with twins, those very sons began to come in between their relationship, it seems. Because Jacob, Isaac favored Esau. And, you know, this is just normal. This is what happens. This is how God has made it. So we're attracted and we have relationships, even among our kids, however many you have. You know that there's a a certain uh, sort of rhythm or a certain thing that happens in your relationships that's different. And, indeed, it should be. It's that way with anyone that you meet. And thus, no different with your your children, with my children. Um, I think it's all the same when you get to grandchildren, but we'll... The birthright. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me, that, feed me this, with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Right now, we've got a deal. Bargain. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Now listen, nobody in Isaac's family was going to die by starvation. They were well taken care of. So this is not what's really going on. What's going on is what's in his heart. He said, I'm about to die, so, which, so what is the birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So apparently, Jacob had been waiting for an opportunity. And here it is, perfect. Here comes Esau from the field. Now perhaps Jacob considered at this point now, having made the transaction, that he purchased the birthright, that he owned it by right of purchase. But listen, 
He did not gain the birth, this birthright as by price. He, get, he gained it by promise. That's what's going on here. None of God's promises can be purchased. Now, we're going to get to see that God will deal with Jacob about his methodology later. He's not getting away with anything. He's going to come fact to face, is what I call it, face to face with Esau, and God's going to be dealing with his past, how he dealt with, with Esau at that point. Jacob is not getting away with anything. Jacob will be crippled by God in the flesh that he might be governed by God in his soul. So Genesis 32 is a fantastic, it's a culmination of years and years of Jacob being Jacob, Esau being Esau. But God had to deal with Jacob because he put, Jacob had a heart for him, as we'll see in a moment. What happened there? He wasn't getting away. God was going to deal with his methodology. And, and that's what happens. We have things about which God, God's not, he's going to deal with us in his chastening of us. God wants to cripple us in our flesh so that he can govern us in our soul, by, in his spirit. And that's what happened. The name Jacob means heel catcher. Israel, where God changed his name in Genesis 32, means governed by God. Oh, how I long to be more governed by God in all these things. And God is faithful. God will be doing that. So look, Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of the lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Now this is the key to Esau. Esau despised his birthright. The birthright was a treasured inheritance. It was a, of supreme value. It meant, number one, you were blessed and favored over all your brothers, which meant you were to preside over the family. It meant that you were to be the priest of the family. It meant that you were in the line of the promised Messiah. With this birthright came the promises given to Abraham. With his birthright came the promise of the seed. With his birthright came the promise of God's blessings, not only to him, but through him to, the, to nations upon nation. It also meant you were to receive double portion of the inheritance. That's what came with the birthright. Esau despised his birthright. He neither, none of these things mattered to him. Esau traded all away in one moment. It was worthless to him and had been. He was secular through and through. He cared for none of it. Now, we have commentary on this in, G in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking carefully, does anyone fall short of the grace of God? And we're going to talk about the grace of God in a moment. But this illustration about falling short of the grace of God, Esau is used. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, here it is, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He was sorry that he wasn't getting what he wanted, but there was no repentance. This word profane means outside the temple or against the temple. It means godless. Esau, in his heart, was against God. He was godless. 
Esau saw, saw no need for relationship with God. He was an unholy, worldly man. Now, you might not see that outwardly, but this is what the Bible tells about his, his very heart nature. Profane. He thought the things of God, his word, his promises were of no value to him. Now, I don't understand that. How does that work? I don't know. Why is the two people from the same family, same upbringing, go opposite directions as far as their relationship or any relationship with God? You see, that's a struggle. That's something that we, we, we really, how does that work? I don't know. Makes you sad, doesn't it? When you think about family members and, and here you are and you and you're wanting to serve the Lord and there's all these things that are going on and then you look at your your brother, your sister, your daughter, your son, your granddaughter, your grandson, and they have no heart for God. Nothing there. It amplifies in my mind, number one, prayer, but secondly, practically, how can I, God, help them to see the truth? And that in itself is difficult. It's a struggle. It's a battle. He despised these things. Esau, his sinful, godless heart sealed his fate. He stands before God alone responsible for what he did with his life. So there you have it. Difficult things. Impossible in many ways to understand. God created. He knit together both Jacob and Esau in the same womb their mother's womb. Both were fearfully and wonderfully made. Both had the capacity to know and love God. But Esau had no heart for the things of God. In fact, it was against them. Where Jacob, in all of his flaws, was pressing through trying to take the things of God. And then God chooses Jacob over Esau. And that's the struggle. And so the question is, what is the problem to solve and what is the tension to manage here? My answer is these truths are tensions to manage. And therein I rest and thus solve problem solved. I don't know, but God does. And so three things I'm going to give you. Number one, there's the struggle within. Listen, you're a sinner. And so there's a struggle there. Secondly, there's the struggle with God. God is sovereign. He, well, look at this. He's, he's sovereign. Then the final struggle is the struggle of grace. God's grace alone saves. So the struggle within, you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. So Esau and Jacob are polar opposites. But both were just as flawed as the other. We all come into this world sinfully flawed. Now, I don't like that. In fact, I try and avoid that truth all the time. From a human perspective, we would notice the flaws of Jacob way before Esau. We would favor Esau and have be in a, in, on better terms. First, his physical look. 
Now, remember when, when Samuel was told to go get a king to replace Saul? And so all those sons of Jesse are paraded, seven of them. And God said to each one of Samuel's looking, oh, he's, sure, he's got to be the one because, look, he's so tall, he's handsome. God said, he's not the one. And here comes number two, three. And God says, nope, 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 nope. Gets through all seven of Jesse's sons. And then God said, no. And so Jesse says, well, I mean, Samuel says, you got another one? Oh, yeah, we got this little ruddy kid back in the back 40. He's taking care of the sheep. He said, get him out here. And he said to Samuel, don't you look as man looks because man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And that's what happened there. And we're so tending to look outwardly. God's looking at the heart. Esau also had an attractive naivety. He was pretty forthright, pretty candid, pretty transparent. Over the years they were apart, Esau became very successful. Years later, when Jacob returns, Esau could have wiped him out along with his whole family. But he doesn't. He runs to Jacob. He embraces Jacob. And rather than repay him for what he did to him in the past, he doesn't take vengeance. What he does, he, he handles it with kindness and generosity and unspoken forgiveness. This is Esau. Esau, it seems, had let go of the past and was moving on. But we are told that Esau despised his birthright. Outwardly, maybe it seems, and he was living under the blessings of God, but he was oblivious. He wanted nothing to do with God himself. Now, Jacob, on the other hand, did desire the things of God. He believed the promises of God as sacred and went after them. He went about getting them, but in an unholy way, yes, but that was where his heart was at. But listen, Jacob was a flawed human being, an opportunist, a cheater, selfishly ambitious, driven by, by ambition, self-seeking, a schemer, willing to take advantage of people if he could. So the question is this, in the struggle, why would God choose either of them? That's really the question. But really, the question is in our struggle, why would God choose me? And if I might, why would he choose you? You are flawed beyond measure, and so am I. So that's really the question. The answer is we struggle to come to terms with our sinfulness. That's what happens. Whether I like it or not, whether it makes me feel bad or not, I am a sinner. You are a sinner. And so what I'm going to do with this, as with the other two, is I will take God at his word. That the reason Jesus came to die for me is because there was no hope, because I was hopelessly lost in sin, dead in trespass and sin. So the answer is, I'm going to take God at his word. I'm going to, I'm going to ask God to help me come to terms with my sinfulness. Now, we are saved from the penalty of sin, but God now as believers is saving us from the power of sin and one day from the very presence of sin. So right now as Christians, we battle with sin. We struggle with sin. And the, the interesting thing is, God doesn't say, well, we're going to reform the old man. What God says is, kill him. Put him to death. 
There's no reformation for that. You're a new creation in Christ. So learning how that works is a struggle. It's a battle. So we struggle, but the answer is to come to terms with our own sinfulness. How do I do that? I'm going to take God at his word and believe these things are true. And then look to his word as how can I overcome? How can I be set free from the power of sin and death and understand the power of the new life through the Holy Spirit? Secondly, the struggle with God. God is sovereign. God's sovereign election of Jacob was over Esau. Look at Romans chapter 9. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls... It's God's call. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, right from our passage. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So God chose Jacob over Esau before they're even born and had done anything at all. Now, is that fair? Is that right? I want you to note that this passage goes beyond just the individual, but to the nations that would come from these from. Esau, Jacob and Esau. So in Malachi chapter 1, another commentary. The burden, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even though, and there it is, the nation, Edom, has said such and such. The descendants of Jacob were the Jews, descendants of Esau, were the Edomites. Whether individual or corporately, it was solely on the basis of divine election. Now, do you understand that? Can you explain that? Now, he says, Esau I've hated. Now, we have to look at this and understand it in a relative sense. As a relative comparison. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not what? Hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciples. What Jesus said, your love for your father, for your mother, and those others should be like hate in comparison to your love for me. It's a relative comparison. Now, Kent Hughes wrote this in his commentary. Notice in all of this that God offers no explanations and certainly no apologies for his choice. The love of God transcends human convention. His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact whether we understand it or not. God's purposes are as set as they are incomprehensible. Look at these two passages. There's many. These two I pulled out of Psalm. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God's in charge. Here's one for you. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Now, you get that and you, you, you would wrestle with it. Well, he just does whatever he pleases. Listen, if I would, if it said that about me, you'd be in trouble. But that's not true of God. But he's in charge. He's sovereign. He's going to do whatever he pleases. And that is a struggle as we try to understand how does this thing work. And God's doing it as he pleases. The sovereign God answers to no one. 
He's not bound by our limited knowledge of him. Our natural sinful tendency is try to lighten it up. Wait a second. So I say, no, we need to bow down before a sovereign God who is in control of all things, whose purposes will be fulfilled completely and perfectly as he has ordained. We must bow down and acknowledge God is sovereign. And he made a choice. And he put Jacob over Esau as well as others. So the question is this. How come God chooses, how come God chooses some and not others? The answer is we struggle to trust God on his own terms. That God calls the shots. And he's just in, in doing that. He's holy in doing that. He's right. Whether I understand them or not, or can explain them or not, we, must, we struggle to trust God on his own terms. And how do we do that? I will take God at his word. That's what we read. That's the revelation. Those are the things revealed. God is sovereign. The final one is the struggle of grace. I love this. When Charlotte was raised in the Assembly of God Church, her and her siblings, total of six, her mom and dad were pastors, Assembly of God pastors in Montana, Chester, Montana. Half the church was her family. She would, you know, she would say, well, in our house, you live like a Christian whether you were one or not. But she was in, in the AG church. And so often after the sermon, it was down to the altar again, down to the altar again. Because this week I didn't do my devotions. This week I didn't pray. This week I didn't tell someone about Jesus. So I got to go get right with God again. But the sense that happened in that environment, all with good, all good, I believe, just a process that God was taking her through and, and many of us the same process. But she would have to come and make sure that God still loved her, make sure God still accepted her. Then she started coming to Calvary Chapel way back. And the emphasis with Pastor Chuck has always been on the grace of God. And for Charlotte at that point in her life, it was like you can't just get off. Like this grace thing is, is letting you off the hook, which is not what was going on because the grace of God is never used as a cloak for our lucidity, but for her and her heart and what God was working in her life. There was that whole idea of the grace of God, but at first it rubs up against this idea that we got to get right with God and right, and we need to do the right thing so God loves us and accepts us and we're on the right path. And she come to realize one morning it was, if I don't do my devotions this morning, God still loves me. If I don't pray this morning, God still loves me. And it began, the grace of God began to weave its way in the fabric of her upbringing, the fabric of her life. And she came to realize it's grace. The grace of God is how we're saved. It's by the grace of God that we're blessed. It's by the grace of God that all these things are ours. Tradition, this quote we can't use. Tradition, can we get that? Tradition does not determine grace. Convention does not dictate grace. Neither does giftedness or natural endowments. Grace does not bow to social privilege or status. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the fool, four times God has called, God has chosen, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, but of, the, but of him. That no flesh should grow in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Jesus is the reason for our redemption. Jesus is the reason of our sanctification. Jesus is the reason of our righteousness. It's all by the grace of God we're saved. I'm going to look at a couple more scriptures here. Romans chapter 11. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of what? Grace. And if by grace it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise works is no longer work. Ephesians chapter 2. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his what? Grace. What? In his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. So the question is. How do I know that God chose me? The answer is, I struggle to receive from God on the basis of this one term, grace. This one term, it's grace. And so it's struggling to receive the grace of God. And all of us understand that. Whether I understand it or not, whether I feel it or not, God in his grace has provided for my salvation, my sanctification, and my ultimate glorification. I cannot say I paid for that. I purchased that. God has given that to me through what he purchased for me on the cross. Can you say amen? So how do I do that? I'm going to take God at his word. It's by grace I've been saved through faith. So God's grace alone saves. That's our birthright. That's our birth, that he loves us. And so we close with this passage. I think you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever what? Believes and shall not perish but have everlasting life. We have been saved by grace through faith. That night, it's the gift of God. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Kevin Day, senior pastor of Calvary Chapel South. I really hope you enjoyed the message and that God spoke to your heart through it. If you'd like to know more about our church and find other messages to watch, head over to ccskent.org. And I would love to meet you at one of our Sunday services. God bless you.